Welcome to Escape the Earth. It's not notes from the apocalypse. I'm only saying that because Liz was telling me that she had to drink tap water today. Uh, so best of luck to her. We hope that she's with us tomorrow. Um, today we have a special guest. It's author S.B. Divya. Liz is going to give a short bio on her. Yes. Uh, first of all, thank you for coming on to the show. We're super excited. Um, so thank, yeah, so, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so S.B. Divya is a lover of science, math, fiction, and the Oxford comma, which also same Z's. She is the Hugo and Nebula nominated author of Machinehood, uh, published by Sega, Runtime, published by Tor.com, and the short story collection Contingency Plans for the Apocalypse and Other Possible Situations, published by Hatchet India. Divya is the co-editor of the weekly science fiction podcast, Escape Pod, with Mer Lafferty. She holds degrees in computational neuroscience and signal processing and worked for 20 years as an electrical engineer before becoming an author. You can find her on Twitter at EdDiviaSweets or at her website, www.sbdivia.com. So yes, once again, thank you. I was so excited for this interview when you agreed. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm very thrilled to be here. Thank you. So first, we, we loved Machinehood. Uh, it really gave us a lot to discuss. There, there is a lot to digest in that book, and you, you worked all those things in there beautifully. Yeah, it was such a great book. Such a great book. I think I was talking to every like all my family members and my boyfriend about it for the entirety of the time I was reading it. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm at least as excited as both of you because it is my first novel. And so it's always wonderful to, you know, have an opportunity to engage with readers, with fans, with librarians whom I absolutely adore. <laughs> um, and so, yes, I, I really appreciate you both uh, reading it and taking the time to chat with me about it. Absolutely. So we're going to start with us uh, with the questions, if you're OK with that and um, I get to go first, and my question is, what do you think is going to be the most disruptive new tech within the next 100 years? I really think it's going to be genetic engineering and biotech. I think we have done a lot with computers. I think we're making strides with artificial intelligence and quantum computing, and you know, interesting things are happening in that space. I think we're making progress on space travel, but more in terms of commercializing it than technologically speaking. So I suspect really that the disruption in this upcoming century is going to be related to biotech and bioengineering and may dovetail nicely into what we're dealing with both for climate change, but also um, what some scientists are calling the latest mass extinction event due to, you know, the Anthropocene, um, the human era. And we're, I think as humanity, we're just kind of coming to realize how much biology and ecology are woven together and woven into our lives and, and how much more we need to respect and appreciate that. Excellent. I noticed in the book too, you use, uh, it seemed like living buildings, right? They were, they were 
made of essentially trees that form the buildings? Yeah, um, I wanted to portray a somewhat balanced vision of the year 2095 in machinehood. And I didn't want it to be all gloom and doom. I wanted to kind of show, you know, how we as human beings might actually have solved some of the problems of today by then. Um, definitely the people of this imagined future are still dealing with the effects of climate change and the fallout. Um, for example, you know, with these massive dust storms in, in the Southwest of the US, but at the same time, they have created movements like outside in, you know, having turf flooring, having buildings that are integrated with genetically engineered plants and trees and living structures. I think that's at least one way that we could hopefully, you know, embrace change and react in some positive ways to um, all the terrible things we're dealing with today. Mm -hmm. um, and I think out of out of the pandemic, it's ironic in machinehood, I had posited that we'd have multiple pandemics in the 2040s. It came a little bit sooner than I anticipated. Um, and I, based on what I've read and researched, we're probably going to be facing, you know, more pandemics in the coming years, just due to pathogens, due to, again, due to, you know, increased heat and humidity. But at the same time, uh, as we have seen, we can more rapidly respond to them. We can use science, we can use technology and, you know, to help ourselves as we often have to overcome these challenges. And I think, again, that kind of feeds into why I really believe biotech is going to be sort of the big new industry um, that takes, you know, leaps and bounds uh, in terms of progress from where we've been in the last 50 to 100 years. Thank you. Uh, okay, so I will ask the next question. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of going on a different aspect of the book now. So, why did you choose to write the book from the two point of views of Nithya and Welga versus writing it from just Welga's point of view? I thought it was a really interesting choice of characters to. Um, it's an interesting lens to tell your whole story through, like through both of them. Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. Uh, I love talking about this because Welga Ramirez is your, you know, typical kind of badass, ex-special forces, action hero type of character. You know, she has her issues as most action heroes do, but she would be kind of the, the principal driving force behind any like fast paced thriller plot, um, which is what's at the center of this book. And in science fiction, we often have, you know, main characters who are like that, you know, whether it's the Mark Watneys or mm -hmm. the Ripley's, there's usually someone who's kind of at the center of all of the action, who is very strong, very kick-ass, very resourceful. The thing we don't see often enough, in my opinion, um, both in terms of media, but also in terms of literature, is the domestic side of the future and mm. what it's really like to inhabit it as an ordinary person going about their life and how those lives get impacted by these massive, you know, history shattering events that are always really fascinating. 
So I wanted to have as my second point of view character, someone like Nithya Balachandran, who is a mom, she's a wife, she's a scientist. Um, she, she happens to be Walga's sister-in-law. So she gets to be intimately involved in the goings on of the main plot line, but her own storyline is a quieter one. And it's through her eyes that you get to see what it's like to cook in this future, what it's like to, you know, buy clothes, to raise a child, to have that child attend school, to work and to have a family. And I just think it's important um, and interesting to have, you know, these these two very sort of different contrasting views of uh, science fictional worlds. And I, I did it a little bit in runtime. The main character, you know, starts out at home. She's got conflicts with her mom. She's got brothers. Then she goes off onto this, you know, wonderful cyborg adventure race through the Sierra Nevada mountains. That's just like survival and very fast paced, but it's always kind of fascinated me this, you know, this contrast between, um, our typical, heroes and the people we think of as heroes and the more sort of ordinary heroism that happens in everyday life. Wow. That was amazing. (laughs) No, I I think that was like the best answer ever. And you also worked in who she later becomes Aotera, Uh Echo Yi. And, you know, you have that brief section in the middle of the book too, where you kind of see her transition from a, from like, kind of like how you're saying like an everyday just average joe <laughs> kind of person and then she just as things happen in her life she morphs into this more i guess impactful figure on the world and then you know spoiler alert everyone <laughs> she, we find out she's kind of very integral to the whole machinehood plot and the motivations behind why machinehood is attacking like uh the the funders and all that stuff and just the your description or your answer to that question just also made me think of that too because I feel like yeah. it, it, it works into exactly what you're saying it just it makes more sense to me now as a reader yeah and hers was kind of was kind of a fun one to write because um I got to kind of show her progression from not just being an ordinary person but being you know what most people would consider like a a very decent kind-hearted person and how how that can get hardened over time and you know turn to someone who's a little bit more extremist in their views which is so human yeah (laughs) i i love how you worked in that very sad haiku uh after her son's death thank you on the subject of Welga uh, versus Nitya, I noticed that like their arcs kind of go in opposite directions and they they sort of meet in the middle where they have, both have these secrets from their partners, Nitya having terminated a pregnancy and then Welga having rejoined government service. Mm-hmm. And then it comes full circle with Welga sort of becoming a more private citizen and Nitya very becoming a very public person at the right. end. Right. One one goes from being relatively disempowered to having more power. And 
Welga, Welga said, yeah, I wouldn't say she's disempowered at the end by, by any means, but, um, for me, her journey was a lot of finding her purpose in life, you know, starting out the story, hitting her 35th birthday, about to be dropped from her job and wondering, you know, um, where she's going to go next. She has some ideas, but then it all gets turned upside down by the machine head. And so by the end of the book, she really gets to kind of find her place, but her place is very, is a very different one from where she starts. And, and as you said, she goes from being a very public figure sort of person to someone who's going to be sequestered away in space in a, in a very private place. I know with spoilers galore, but (laughs) yeah, well, we tell people that ahead of time, like they should know. I think we usually do that in our intro. We're just like, there will be spoilers. So if you haven't read the book, just don't listen yet. (laughs) We we encourage everybody to read it first and then, and then list. um... That's okay. It's, it's (laughs) nice to be able to talk about the whole book. I've done a lot of interviews where we're stepping very gingerly around spoilers and trying you know not to give anything away so (laughs) it's always always fun to just let go and be like okay and then this happens (laughs) yeah just stomp away right well and really we're not giving all that much away to get the full context people are still going to have to have to read it i mean you get a very general sense and you'll get more out of this conversation if you have uh, listening to the conversation if you have read it I just wanted to ask you about the economics that you that you uh, set up uh, for the for your world building. Obviously, economics affects or impacts every aspect of our lives, and so it's very interesting that you chose for everybody to work in the gig economy or to be a funder. Yeah, I made that choice in part because when I started writing this book, it was 2017 and there was a lot of noise, uh, mostly positive at that time about, you know, the gig economy revolution that was coming. I think we've backed away from that a bit, but at the same token, I don't see any of us really backing away from capitalism in the next 75 years. And I think the way things are going, it is plausible that we could have a push towards, you know, even less um, regular employment and even more gig-based and contract-based work. And I was kind of looking at, you know, what happened in, in the previous century, in the 20th century, where for a lot of people in at least certain parts of the world, um, they would join a corporation and they would be there for their entire lives. They would get pensions. You know, this was basically their second family and how relatively rapidly that eroded, you know, through the the eighties and the nineties. And yet we managed, even though people who are in favor of labor rights and workers unions were kind of yelling, everybody else was like, no, it's fine. Like we're making plenty of money. Like let's just go along even though there's this entire segment of society that's being, um, well, screwed for lack of a better word, out of all kinds of benefits that they used to take for granted. 
And then, you know, over the past decade, watching the gig economy grow and seeing similar sorts of arguments, you know, even from people who are working within that economy, that they appreciate the freedoms, the flexibility, and they're not that concerned with, again, further erosion and loss of benefits as workers. So it didn't seem like that much of a stretch to me to say that, you know, over the coming decades, this, this is going to kind of, this trend is going to continue of basically um, disenfranchising uh, human labor, especially as we do get more automation, more artificial intelligence, more, you know, technologically driven solutions to a lot of our, a lot of our work. What are human beings going to do? That's a, that's a question people are still asking. And while universal basic income is one possible solution to keeping people solvent, I don't think that's going to keep people happy. Um, the, the experiments that have been done thus far have been sort of supplementary payments for people who then are still looking for jobs or working or studying and using their uh, basic income or supplementary income to help pay for those things, right? But they still wanna go out and get fulfilling jobs. They wanna do work. Um, So I don't think that's gonna go away. I think we're gonna still have to have some form of work. The question is, is there going to be enough reliable 40 hours a week type of work for people to do? to where we can have the sort of employment rates that we're used to, or is it going to end up being very piecemeal and people are going to find work, but they're going to be, you know, lots of short little things that you fill your day with. So while I don't necessarily believe that we have to end up in the gig future of machinehood, I thought it would be interesting to explore what that future might look like. And again, what it would be like to inhabit that world, to work in that world. And, you know, what are the, what are some of the potential consequences of having that as your primary lifestyle, especially if everybody takes it for granted and nobody's, you know, shocked or appalled at this is the way of life. I know Tim has mentioned that before. And they can never, we first started the podcast that that's one of the things that draws us both and I'm sure you as well to science fiction and fantasy books it's it's a place to to explore these things it's like we're not saying they will happen but what if and here are some other possible outcomes consequences and so they're just it's just a place to explore all that without trying to necessarily start doing it and having people look at you like uh what are you doing Yes, I, I wouldn't want people to necessarily take the future of machinehood as a prescription on where we need to go. <laughs> we we have talked about the artificial intelligence in the past, and I see what you're saying about capitalism. But if you think just the self-driving car, think about how many how many things uh, that will impact from an economic standpoint. You know, no more speeding tickets, so those municipalities will no longer have to find other ways to raise money. No more judges in traffic court. Uh, what does that do to the insurance industry? 
Um, obviously, shipping, trucking, all of that. It's, it's kind of scary. What are, we, what are we going to do with all those people? I, I love how you talk about people needing some kind of purpose uh, mm-hmm. to, to find their life fulfilling. And we, we have some big questions still here. <laughs> we do, but I think eventually people will find work. And uh, whether it's, you know, in the biotech field, whether it's um, infrastructure works to deal with climate change, um, inevitably work comes and human labor is still, frankly, cheaper and easier to deal with than machine labor. At least as of today, building and training a robot is very expensive. It's not easy. And they are far stupider than, you know, your average 10-year-old, <laughs> maybe even your average five-year-old. Um, they can do certain very specific things with a high degree of precision and skill, but they cannot generally be taken from one job to another. And so from that standpoint, I think, you know, human workers are, are going to be valuable for, for quite a while. And it's interesting, this sort of existential concern that we're facing right now is something that we faced a hundred years ago, just in a different context, which was moving from agricultural labor to office and um, factory labor. There were, there was, there was kind of the rise of factories in the twenties and thirties. And then there was the rise of, you know, the, the office work and the white collar work that came in the forties and fifties. And in the, the 1910s and 20s, a lot of people were, uh, were very worried. They're like, well, if we're not going to work on the farms, what are we going to do? And they didn't really have this vision of like, you go and you sit at a desk. It's like, what do you do sitting at a desk all day? You know, what possible work could be there to fill enough desks to employ an entire nation's worth of people? And yet, you know, here we are working our desk jobs, uh, many of us 60, 70 hours a week. <laughs> and interestingly, both then and today, I hear uh, certain people, often academics, but even otherwise, claiming that automation is going to allow us to have more leisure time, to pursue the creative arts, to do the things you're passionate about in life. And sadly, that did not come true in the last century. And I, I highly doubt it's going to come true in the coming century because, again, as in Machina, the funders, the people holding the capital, the wealth, uh, want to keep growing that. And so they're going to keep investing in, in new types of work and will probably all still be very, very employed in 50 years. <laughs> That is great because that gig economy situation, I was like, oh my goodness, if I lived this, I was like having a panic attack just thinking about it. (laughs) You are not the only one. I've had a lot of people, including some friends who read early versions of the novel go, this is a terrifying future. Do you really think this is what's going to happen? I'm like, probably not. You know, it's it's rare that anyone gets to accurately predict uh, 10 years in the future, much less 75 years in the future. And so I suspect uh, the actual future will be, will be quite different. Who is it? Robert Zemeckis got 2020 all wrong and back to the future. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, where are our hoverboards everywhere? <laughs> yes, exactly. I so don't remember it, whose turn was it? Was it my turn? It, it's your turn. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, one of the things or one of the focal points of the machinehood in the book is like the rights of robots in addition to the rights of humans. Because in machinehood, uh, robots or ways, weak artificial intelligences have they've kind of reached the level of intelligence of like animals. And I mean, we know from research that animals, for example, a dog, like they have emotions, they, they have a very like complex emotional spectrum. And so my question is, what are your thoughts or opinions on robot rights? Should they have them? Do they need them? Is this really like something we're thinking about at this point in time? Cause like you said earlier, robots are kind of stupid right now right except for like their one <laughs> task that maybe they're really good at what's interesting I was listening to another podcast um and I was doing a a, a really fun panel but with um with a academic named David Gunkel who is also talking about robot rights but in a very serious fashion as are you know more and more people um While I don't think any of us are claiming that robots need to have the same rights as human beings in the, in the very near future, we are wanting more people to consider what rights they should have, not just in and of themselves, right? Just as you know, you're not going to give a dog the right to own property or to vote, but we have kind of acknowledged that dogs generally speaking, have the right to exist. And if they're in a household with someone who's taking care of them, then they have a certain degree of protection afforded um, as a result of that existence. Uh, Some of it is relating to property rights, but even there, I think property rights may have to evolve and adapt to um, robots and artificial intelligences because it is a little bit different. It's trickier when you're dealing with something that is, you know, moving through the world that is adaptable, that potentially does have uh, feelings, even if they're artificially generated feelings. And in part, some of it comes from the fact that human beings are interacting with these things, right? Mm-hmm. Whether we are interacting with our pets, whether we're interacting with our farm animals whether we're interacting with children who are minors and don't necessarily have the same rights as adults, um, whether we're interacting with our own property, like our houses and our cars, and whether we're interacting with artificial intelligences, both software and hardware. And so there's always, I think, nuances in terms of these relationships that human beings have to Um, the other beings and the things that are in their lives. And so from that standpoint, it is worth considering what rights your, you know, self-driving car should have, what rights your Roomba or automated, you know, cleaning system should have, what rights does uh, Google Home or an Alexa or Siri have? And that's something you know, we're very much talking about today more in the context of what rights do the corporations who own those devices and therefore collect your data have. 
-hmm. but it's a transactional process, right? They are Mm -hmm. listening to you. They're providing you with information as well, and they're providing you with services. So there's always, you know, going way, way back, um, there's always been social contracts. And I think we need to definitely consider how intelligent devices, especially as they get more and more intelligent, uh, fit into those contracts and where they fit into those contracts legally. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm, I mean, I'm like, I am just a science fiction author. It's like, yes, I have done my research, but right. my background is not in ethics. I'm not a philosopher. Right. Uh, I'm an engineer, but engineers, uh, unfortunately, especially of my generation, we're not given much grounding in ethics either. <laughs> we're seeing some of the negative fallout from that today in the tech world. But I am, I'm very gratified to see that there are you know, legal scholars, there are philosophers, there are ethicists who are digging into this problem quite seriously. And mm-hmm. I think it's always good to be a little you know, proactive with this, like before the robots are smart enough that people are like, wait, uh, we have basically enslaved these um, creations of ours. Maybe before we get to that point, you know, it would be a good time to kind of work out what's the appropriate way to interact with them. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Definitely you want to head (laughs) off the problem before it just goes, wham, smack you in the face. and You're like, oh, dear. Well, uh, we've kept we promised you 15 minutes, I think, and we've kept (laughs) you we've kept you for 37. Um, It's a lot to talk about. (laughs) <laughs> did, did you want to go on with the last two questions or yeah i'm i'm okay to do that okay um where do you think welga and nitya will be one year after the machinehood storyline yeah that was a fun question um i suspect that a year later welga is going to be um dealing with trying to be an ambassador she is not the most diplomatic person naturally speaking. (laughs) So being that sort of bridge between space and earth, between, you know, Dakini and humans um, is not going to be the easiest job she's had for sure. And so that's going to be sort of the the things she's dealing with, uh, you know, on top of having Connor and her dad uh, at the space station and, and all the fun personal stuff there. Nithya, I think, will be, you know, going through the the growing pains of moving from being a um, a contract worker to someone who actually funds projects, because that is a that is a big mental shift um, to being more managerial, to being more entrepreneurial. She's not much of a risk taker inherently, so she's going to have to develop a whole new set of skills going forward and also dealing with, you know, um, her husband and his feelings about all that. Um, I would love to imagine that they have a good future together where, you know, he's actually helping her collaborate, maybe funding some rocketry projects and something that they both, you know, really love and enjoy doing together. I think she may actually have the more interesting future. Uh, for the sequel? Oh, I don't know. Um, not that I am writing a sequel, but uh, <laughs> if, <laughs> but I was think- <laughs> if I was, I was thinking about, you know, setting something like five years down the line where Welga is really sort of 
um, mentoring a new Dakini and telling it from that new Dakini's perspective of trying to make peace with uh, the people on earth, with, you know, all the changes that are brought about by this technology and the fundamental struggles that they're still having in 2075 of having an equitable future, especially when it comes to access to technology. Or maybe, or maybe the, they're making Dakini on earth now and all the humans are scared of them. That could be too. And, uh, and, you know, we could bring Nithya back in there to have her help fund some of these Dakini technologies and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever backlash there might be from that. I'd read it. <laughs> okay. So last question, and I hope this is kind of a fun one as well. If given the choice, would you want your personal assistant to be a separate entity like poor Kay was with Belga before be- before becoming a Dakini or ingrained into your physical being like after Welga became a Dakini? Yes, this was definitely a fun question too. And um, I would definitely go for the after. I I embrace my cybernetic future so hard. Um, I already have cyborg eyes. I have like uh, lenses implanted in my eyes um, because I was, I was not a very good candidate for LASIK. I was highly myopic. And they were like, well, there's these intraocular lenses. It's basically like a soft contact lens, but we slip it inside, like behind your cornea. And it just kind of floats there and corrects your vision in there. And I was like, oh yeah, let me try that. And, um, and, you know, just with, with pacemakers, with, oh gosh, artificial knees. I'm, I'm like, I'm not that old, but I'm almost ready for artificial knees already. My knees are terrible. Um, so just, Yes. Yes. I would go like full integration. I think that would be, uh, an incredible experience, probably, you know, very hard and potentially a little traumatizing, um, to get through initially. Um, but if you can do it gradually enough, I think, uh, it would be really wonderful. I mean, it's basically like having your current, uh, whatever Google or Siri in your head. Um, but not reporting back to some mega corporation, (laughs) like you get it all to yourself, but you still get access to all of that information, to that knowledge. And, you know, all that rapid back and forth we have with our thumbs and our phone would just be seamlessly integrated into our thoughts. Yeah. I think that would be pretty cool. I know it, it freaks out a lot of people, but but I am not one of them. <laughs> Same. I am not. I'm just like, where do I sign up? If, if mm-hmm. y'all needed a, a guinea pig, hello. Yep. Yep. Right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> I would like it, but then sometimes I'd want to shut it off too. Like go to sleep, poor Kay. Yes, that would be nice. Though if you're fully integrated, there is no poor Kay. It's all just you. Right. So when you go to sleep, it goes to sleep. And when you're awake, it's awake. That's true. That's all. Awesome. So yeah, if you really want to separate it, you <laughs> got to keep it, you know, you got to keep it as a separate contained entity in order to be able to completely shut it down. But I wonder, and this would be another fun story to write is after you've done all that integration, what happens if somehow something does shut down that connection? Like, 
you know, how do you deal? It becomes a disability at that point, right? Because you're so used to having it that Mm -hmm. now you're going to have to adapt to living without it. Or what if you can be hacked? Or what if you can be hacked? That may or may not have already happened in my novella. (laughs) (laughs) May or may not have. Well, that's our, that's our last question. We just want, this will be coming out in September, roughly. And so uh, keeping that in mind, what would you be working on next? And will anything be changing between now and then? That is uh, a future I actually have very limited visibility on. I wrote a, a new novel last year that's being shopped around right now. So I'm, I'm waiting to hear back whether that sells. If it does, uh, between now and September, I will A, be very happy and B, be working on that. Um, otherwise, uh, I'm starting to maybe brainstorm on yet another book in case that one doesn't sell to start writing something there. And I haven't yet decided because the the one that's making the rounds right now is kind of a far future space adventure thing. And so I'm not sure the next one if I'm going to bounce back to a little bit more of a near-ish future setting, probably not as close as machinehood, maybe more like 150, 200 years out. Um, But I'm, you know, as with a lot of other writers in this space, um, I'm getting increasingly interested in exploring the ramifications of climate change. And so um, I think that's going to be something of a driver for whatever it is that I'm looking at in the next six months. Excellent. Awesome. (laughs) We look forward to reading that too. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And petition for Publishing House to buy the book you're currently circulating. Thank you. Yes. Get lots of people to sign that petition, please. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us for this interview. Yeah, you're very welcome. Like I said, it's my pleasure to be here and always wonderful to talk about it. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. Remember, every book that we discuss is available for checkout through the San Antonio Public Library. You can visit them online at mysapl.org. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can view our book list reviews and suggested reads at our Goodreads page. That's Sap Will Escape the Earth. You can write us with stories, suggestions, random thoughts, or interesting sci-fi and geek culture information at sapwillescapetheearth at gmail.com. All scrunched together like one word. And we will definitely read whatever we get on the air. And join us next month. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And escape the earth.